Welcome to Uppity Women. Today we're talking to Abby Anderson. She was the communications director and press secretary for Jared Henderson, who ran for governor of Arkansas in 2018. Abby's a native Arkansan and wants to stay in Arkansas and keep working in politics. I hope she is able to do that. I've been saying for a while now that I would love to see an all-woman shop handling campaigns, issue campaigns, public relations, just all things politics. We've got some men in the field, but I would like to see some more women get involved and run the show because they do a great job. Um, And speaking of which, Hannah McAllister was Jared Henderson's campaign manager. She had never done it before and she kicked ass. It was really fun to watch. Um, All of these young people just really work hard and try to get their candidate elected. Unfortunately, he lost, but I know they learned a lot, including Abby. She's pretty fresh out of school, but has done a lot. And she's also, I don't know how to say this, she's, she's really smart. And I'm not surprised at that, but she's very kind of sweet and soft-spoken. And then when she talks, it's just like she just, she sounds way more experienced than her age should allow. She's just a really smart person. And I had a great time talking to her and I hope that we have a lot more conversations. I'm sure we will. But um, anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Just one note, we talked about a podcaster, Janetta Elsey, and that's not who we meant. We actually meant Brittany Pagnett. So I'm going to link to the right person and podcast in the show notes. So when you hear Janetta Elsey, that's not who we really meant. All right. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad, glad to see you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, does it does it feel like a lifetime ago that we were in the same building with the campaign? Yes, absolutely. Know? It both feels like it was just last week and uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll get to that first. Why don't you tell me, uh, tell us who you are and and some of your background, where you're from, and where you went to school. I am Abby Anderson. I'm born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I went to school here in Little Rock. Uh, for kindergarten through 12th grade and then went to UCA for undergrad and I live here now. And when did you graduate from UCA? I graduated from UCA in December of 2017, right before the 2018 election cycle. So when I met you, you were, no, I met you with the Young Democrats, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Okay. Um, Was it at the annual What's our origin story? The annual state convention. I think you came and spoke about Women Lead Arkansas or um, political advocacy work for women. Right. It was at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. That was actually really fun. And then we met again because Jared Henderson was running for governor and he started using subletting my office. Yes. Right. So that's how we reconnected. And you had, I guess I could just let you tell the story, but you were sort of working for him on a part-time basis, right? How did that happen? I can't remember the details. So initially I had heard that Jared was running um, this really incredible and talented, um, you know, person who'd worked in education and science and a number of other areas uh, was running for governor. And it sounded like a really exciting race to be on. And so I reached out and uh, offered to work for his campaign. Initially, the the first thing that anyone does on a campaign is start raising money. And so he needed a finance staff right then and there. I had worked on that 
previously in the 2016 cycle. So we jumped right in and I was working for him on a part-time basis as a call time manager, which is a role that helps the candidate facilitate how they call around to people that they know and other donors and start to raise money to get the campaign operation off the ground. And how did you find out about Jared? Is it just from being in the political community? Right. I was uh, I was in my last semester of college in December, or well, in fall of 2017 at UCA and was interning with the state party under Jessica Sabin, who had worked there. And they were talking about, uh, you know, someone that was interested in running for governor. And I was like, wow, that sounds like an incredible candidate. So, and I'm about to graduate. So. Okay. I guess I don't remember that you were graduating at that same time. <laughs> Maybe we never talked about it, but okay. So jumping back just a little bit, you graduated with a degree in communications? Political science and communication, and then a minor in Southern studies. Oh, Southern studies. I'll bet that's interesting. It was. So what does is, what is Southern studies entail? Um, it's primarily a history degree, and it goes over um, some other aspects of what informs and created history in terms of like um, sociology and other things. But I really enjoyed it. And political science and communication, the University of Central Arkansas was really great in working with me in terms of they didn't have a political communication program necessarily, but um, in really finding those classes that overlapped with politics in the study of communication. And I learned a lot from them. Yeah. Well, when did you become interested in politics? I think I've always been interested in law. I think I decided when I was roughly about seven <laughs> that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I just thought that politics was always something that wasn't necessarily attainable for like the average person. I thought you had to be uh, some sort of connected to be in politics. And then I guess my senior year of high school and going into my freshman year of college, I realized that, oh, you know, people can volunteer on campaigns, people can work in other capacities, and I was really interested in that and started to get involved in any way that I could find. I think you're right that anyone can get involved. That's for sure true. Especially in a place like Arkansas, it's so small. Right, absolutely. You have access to everyone pretty much, and I do like that about Arkansas, unless I don't want to be accessed sometimes. (laughs) but, But I'm not really sure what my question is, but I guess I'm thinking of... And I don't know if this is accurate, but Jared was an outsider to politics. Um, He had never run before. He hadn't been active in the party that that I recall. And so it's accessible. But if you want to actually run for office, I feel like you have to be part of a club. And if you're not, Mm -hmm. you really don't get the attention and resources, which I guess I understand. I mean, the party's not going to invest in you if you're not engaged or involved with them, right? How does that work? Right. Well, you know, I think that there are certainly some systemic problems that are starting to alleviate themselves in terms of like which candidates we prioritize that run in the Democratic Party in general. And I think that we're seeing that with, you know, some really fierce and fiery um, congressional primaries that happened in the 2018 cycle. And I do think that people often perceive politics as something that you do have to be in those sort of clubs. And sometimes that's true. But I think that really pushing that and not accepting that is something that we're starting to see across the country and something that I'd really like to see happen in Arkansas because I I think that we have some phenomenal candidates come out when that happens. And I don't think that it should be like that. I think that we, you know, every politics affects everyone and therefore everyone should be able to have some sort of stake in it if they want to. So if you're not part of that club, how do you then operate? Like for those people who are kind of working outside the system, 
how does that work? What does that look like? Right. I think that that first and foremost looks like a lot of hard work. Like you said, if you're not necessarily a priority candidate, then you may not get the, or you may not feel like you get the sort of resources or the sort of attention that someone who has been highly anticipated um, running would get. I do think that However, though, if you're willing to work hard and build the sort of grassroots infrastructure that it takes, especially on a local level, to win a campaign, that there really are a few things that could stop you. I I do think that like money in politics is certainly a problem, but I do think that no matter what, you can outwork it if if you're willing to and have the organization and the the moxie to get it done. Mm -hmm. Are there changes in the way that we need to communicate? And I know that you're fairly new, but you're a student of history and politics, right? So uh, I think I think everyone is still struggling with how to deal with the world with the world of Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that his style of communication or leadership is necessarily um, does not necessarily work the same in Arkansas. So I'm not suggesting that you know we should all go out there and talk the way he does or bully people or you know whatever. I'm speaking from a, a position of bias, so let me just put that out there. <laughs> but, um, you know, this sort of real talk. But I've always felt like, I've been in Arkansas for, I guess, 22 years, and I've always felt like Arkansans are pretty pragmatic, mm-hmm. and they're pretty, pretty, I, I feel like they can see through bullshit pretty well. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I mean, so do we need to communicate differently these days than we have previously is really the short question. Hmm. I think yes and no in terms of uh, candidates and, and political parties and operatives communicating with voters across Arkansas. I do think that Arkansas has had the opportunity to have a lot of really great leaders over the years who are incredible communicators and really connect with people. I do think that that is something that we have kind of lost along the way, or perhaps national rhetoric has gotten in the way of that to where people just don't want to listen to us anymore. But I do think that maintaining that sort of authenticity and the way that we communicate with people is the most important thing that you can do in Arkansas, just because, you know, like you said, they, they people will see through if you're just, you know, talking and, and trying to talk smooth about things. But if you're really having real conversations with people about um, the, the struggles that they're facing in small town Arkansas, you know, like if you're if you're talking with someone in, in Piggott or Mariana, they they just want to know that you are an Arkansan just like them who is willing to fight for them. And I think that at the end of the day, that that is the most important thing. That, that's really why we also need to run good candidates that are actual that represent their actual communities that represent you know whether you're in northwest arkansas or in the delta that really resonate with the people that they're trying to represent and that's that's how you have those conversations organically that's how you have them authentically and Mm -hmm. that's that's how we should be communicating yeah no i agree i just don't know it's hard to it's just hard to tell what works because I feel like I'm just cynical and sad right now about everything, and I don't like being that way. You know, I want to be hopeful and optimistic. <laughs> it's easy to be that way these days. It is. It is. And I, I have been a little disconnected in the last couple of years just because I've felt like I had to for my mental health, but mm-hmm. but also just I've been super busy, so I haven't been right, terribly sure. engaged. But when I do talk to people, well, here's what I'm thinking of is the the people who are running or who are in political office and they might 
feel one way about an issue, let's say gay marriage, um, mm-hmm. but they would never say so publicly because they want to be reelected or they don't want to upset their constituents. And mm-hmm. I, and I I know that that is just that has been going on forever and will always continue to. But what I'm trying to figure out in my life as a way to help the state or my community, how can we get people to come together on issues, right? So, and I don't, and I guess going back to my question to you about how to communicate with people in Arkansas, yes, riling people up and making them angry or making them fearful, that is definitely effective. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, I think that people actually do want to get stuff done and, and make it better for themselves and their families and, you know, the state. And so, um, okay, I feel like I'm just rambling and I don't mm-hmm. know if I even have a question actually, but I talked to Jared a little bit about this. You know, he said when he was able to just talk to someone, even mm-hmm. this, they said, no, I'm a Republican. I'm not going to, you know, I'm voting for ASA. But when they when they actually start talking about issues and what's important to them, they end up having a great conversation. And I think I both asked, I asked Hannah and Jared this, how do you scale those conversations? Like, is there a way, is that is that a formula for winning? Let me just put it that way, right? right. So can you... I, yeah, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I'm no, rambling. I totally, I totally get what you're asking. I, and that that is the big question is that, you know, the idea that a one-on-one conversation with someone because you know ultimately when you sit down and talk with anyone face to face, first of all, it's going to be a much more pleasant conversation than it might be, let's say, over Facebook or in the you know Twitter thread or something like that. I think that, it, well, it's it's scientifically like proven that those conversations in politics are the most effective to have. And I think that when we sit down and have those conversations that you're likely to agree with someone a lot more than you would originally anticipate. Just removing all of the like polling and and everything else that we tend to think of when we think of these mass amounts of people that we have to convince in order to vote for a candidate. But the idea that we have to scale that on a much broader scale is really, I think, where in terms of communication and messaging um, in a campaign, I think that that is important. You know, you have to push, put your message out there in the media um, and earn media on social media, everything else. But also where field really becomes important because if you have someone from your community knocking on your door that you see at church every Sunday and they are so motivated that they're out on a, on a Sunday morning or, uh, well, Saturday morning knocking doors and talking with you about a candidate personally, then you're more likely to be invested in that. That candidate already and then you're having that one-on-one conversation with that person and that person is knocking on your door two or three more times before the election and you're going to vote anyway you're probably going to go vote for that person uh, that personal connection is there and you've had one-on-one conversations to talk it out and think it through and so I think that when we're looking at how you scale a message and that authentic sort of ideas and agreement that we're looking for with voters that it has to be done through field because I have seen candidates have really incredible conversations with people who automatically were just like oh no I'm not going to vote for you you know like I support Trump or something never vote for a Democrat and they end up walking away you know shaking hands and and perhaps you know being friends or like like yeah I I might vote for you and I wish that candidates had the time and the ability to be able to do that one-on-one with every voter in Arkansas or with every voter anywhere but that's just it's not doable and I think that that's really where 
field and grassroots organizing comes into play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because your surrogates or your, your people have to be out there and... Right. And it's all about building relationships and right, right. having those conversations. When you first started working for Jared, um, you and I had talked, and it was before you were hired for the communications position. Mm-hmm. And you were, I think, looking at jobs all over the country. Mm-hmm. I believe you told me then that it was hard to get sort of a, a toehold in Arkansas, but you didn't want to have to go outside. You wanted to right. you wanted to work for candidates here. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, like I said, I'm born and raised in Little Rock. I've lived in Arkansas my whole life. Generations of my family have lived here. I have family in southern Arkansas and northern Arkansas, all over the place. You know, people have cousins in every county, I feel like. But uh, this is absolutely home, and I, it's, politics is something that I care about, the game of it and everything else. But also, I really care about delivering results for a state that I grew up in and invested in me, and I want to invest back in it. I do think that the way that politics has operated in this state for so long has been a very small club of people. And I do think that that can kind of get in the way in terms of like how things are ran and in who by. I think that I've run into problems with that before, but certainly I would much rather stay here and have that opportunity to go and work in Arkansas politics rather than have to leave and go work somewhere else. Do you feel like it's, uh, I know anything's possible, but I think that and this kind of goes to our conversation we were having a little bit off mic. The club needs to grow. Absolutely. Or it needs to be more open to people who don't want to be part of the club, but mm-hmm. want to um, right. help in some See way. change, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, I don't want to have to be a member of the Democratic Party to be able to impact its... My brain is not working. <laughs> I obviously align with the Democratic Party and what I think that they mm-hmm. stand for, but... I don't necessarily want to have to join it to be able to support its candidates or sort of help shape its platform and also push back on things or, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that that's why there's such an interest in third parties um, or independents because there are so many people, I'm assuming, uh, who feel like the parties don't represent their lives Mm -hmm. and what they're trying to do in this world, right? Even if it does. And so... If you're not a part of this club, I guess maybe I'm asking the same question I asked earlier. Can you still be effective or can you still win or can you still get involved? I definitely think that. So back to what I said earlier, I do think that and what you said just a few minutes ago, the makeup of the party in Arkansas and in many other states across the country needs to look radically different. Right now, it is a few really great people who have been in this for a long time and are, in some cases, they're burnt out. In some cases, they're more fired up than ever before, but are few in number and need to, the rooms need to look different. They're like tried and true blue Democrats, but they're struggling, you know, they're they're few in numbers and it's a big thing to take on to radically change the makeup of a party. At the same time, I think that's why we also need people who are willing to push the fold of how that club operates. And I think that anytime that we are welcoming more and more people that haven't necessarily been involved before into democratic politics, that that honestly makes it better as long as, you know, they align with their values and everything else. And I think that you have to push the envelope in order to make that happen or else it, it just won't ever change. I think that that's, that's coming in sort of a national trend of how campaigns are functioning, who's getting hired, uh, what these teams look 
look like, uh, who's getting elected to office and everything else. I think we're seeing so much change around the country in terms of diversity, representation, new people, new blood. I think that's bound to come to Arkansas. I think the energy is there for it. And I think that people who don't necessarily find a home in the Democratic Party, but care about a lot of the issues that they stand for and that they represent, that we have to build an infrastructure that allows people to plug in where they want to be involved. Because at the end of the day, I do think that third parties are certainly a thing and they serve their purpose, but that Democrats are the ones who are most effectively able to, as long as we you know, get some more seats, gain some more power, that we're most effectively able to leverage legislation and um, changes that we need to see in our state. I think that people should feel like they can walk into a room and not feel like it's the same group of people from 50 years ago that all know each other. Uh, that's that's a little intimidating, and I think that needs to change in, in some pretty big ways. Do you think that there is maybe conflict between sort of the older generation of Democrats and then the younger people hmm. who want to be involved, but they just do things differently, they communicate differently, they have different ideas about things, whether it's social issues or the economy, education. Do you see that kind of conflict in the party? I don't necessarily see it in the party as its structure. I do see it among individual people in terms of who wants to lead. And I do think that there is that tension there. Not always. I think that there are people who have been working in politics for a long time, but realize that it's changing in very big ways. You know, like Donald Trump is president and um, we have incredible congresswoman like AOC who just got elected, who is vastly different than something that we've had in the Democratic Party before. I think that there is that struggle and that tension, but ultimately that young people are really motivated to change things just because we, we don't have a lot of time. Um, and, you know, before things start getting worse or really bad. And I, I think that it will ultimately buff out. But whether people want to accept it or not, the way that campaigns and parties are working are changing fundamentally every day pretty rapidly. No matter what age you are, I think that you really have to be on board with that and accept that and grow with it rather than allow that tension to be there. Do you think this has always been a problem? Hmm. <laughs> I wish I knew. Yeah. I Sometimes I feel like it could just be right now that we're at such a pivotal moment in our in our history, but I think of what has happened before and certainly potentially far more pivotal moments. And I I really wish I knew what kids, or well, kids, what 24-year-olds were saying back then, because I, I, I don't know if it's always been that way, but I certainly do feel like times are changing and very critical. Yeah, dangerously critical. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, climate change, number one. Absolutely. I, I just, I will never understand why we are not addressing it like right this very second. Right. And I kind of, I try really hard not to be morally superior to who I would call conservatives who are just interested in business and rich people and all of that, which is an unfair generalization. But, um, you know, I just don't get it. Jason and I travel a lot and this, mm -hmm. this state, I mean, just forget about traveling outside of Arkansas. Arkansas is just incredibly beautiful, oh, yes. full of wonderful resources and people come here to spend time here and you know I enjoy it almost every day and so I don't understand why we wouldn't want to protect that especially in a place like the Bible Belt mm -hmm. which and I'm not religious so I have already an aversion to organized religion but <laughs> um, but that they wouldn't care for this world that their God created right. you know, I just Absolutely. don't understand it and so 
so I guess, and I'm 48, so I'm not, I'm not a young person anymore. I'm, I guess I'm middle-aged now. That's so depressing to say, but um, hopefully I'm middle-aged. But how are young people thinking about this? You know, I mean, I guess, I guess when I, when I do think about what we're talking about right now, I'm like, well, I don't, they shouldn't be waiting for us, right? AOC should introduce the Green New Deal. Right. Fuck them, because no one else is doing anything. So if they're not going to, then the young people have to, because it's their future, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, Jason and I didn't have kids, and there are days when I'm so glad that we didn't, because I just am so worried about the future and about my nieces and nephews and, you know, everyone else. So, Right. It's scary. It is scary. It is. So how did I get to this? I guess just the generational differences. And, you know, like when my mom was was in her early 20s, I mean, it was, mm-hmm. I guess it was the 60s and 70s. And, you know, they were fighting for women's rights and, and mm-hmm. civil rights and sexual freedom and, you know, all of that stuff. But it was also a very violent time, which I think we forget. And so right. I, I think that we've got, um, I call it generational amnesia. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of forget the work that the older people did on our behalf absolutely and so when I talk about conflict between the older and younger generations you know I I think the the older people kind of think uh yeah sister you wouldn't be here if it weren't for me right right and now and now you're saying I'm doing it all wrong and so I guess maybe that's what I mean by the there's another word for it. I don't know if it's conflict, but there's a new way of doing things. So in your experience and working, you know, within the party and with all of these different people, because you have to work with everyone, mm-hmm. right? So what is the dynamic that you are, are seeing? Right. So I definitely see that amongst activists and voters in general, where, you know, there's the the boomer generation and uh, the new millennials or Gen Zs who are, are increasingly worried about climate change or increasingly worried about the restrictions on women's rights that we're seeing, um, the dissolving of more and more union rights, you know, across the country and the struggles that the middle class are having and just not necessarily knowing how to have, I think that we struggle having those conversations with the older generation because you know, they, they already went through their own set of things. And I think that that's probably likely to happen at any moment in history. I do think that primarily where that comes into campaigns, though, is that there are a certain, some people call them the consultant class, or some people call them, you know, like the the savvy, older, wiser people who, you know, just are magically there in politics. Um, I do think that we are seeing this this huge energy and motivation of people, you know, coming into politics, wanting to change the makeup of it, wanting to fight for things like the Green New Deal or or progressive issues or women's rights, and that there are those people who still sit at the top sometimes who are doing it the way that it's always been done. And I think that in campaigns we primarily see that tension with the consultant class versus the activists who are running these campaigns or the activists who are running for office and that, you know, I think that goes back to you have to be able to learn and grow and accept that, you know, sometimes you can do things the way that they've always been done with tried and true strategy and everything else. But sometimes, you know, you've got to think outside the box and you've got to be willing to take a leap because the stakes are just too high. Mm-hmm. I've talked about this with several people before. This sort of there seems to be this sort of formulaic way of running campaigns mm-hmm. that may have worked a decade ago or even four years ago. Right. That is just not going to work now. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, we live in Little Rock, and you know, we have access to the internet, and mm-hmm. 
anything we need, text messages or whatever, but there, <laughs> there are so many places in the state that just don't have access to that form of communication. Right. right? So you still need to use the old ways, mm-hmm. what, what I'm going to call the old ways to, to reach voters and people. Yeah. That was the thing that was so cool about working with Jared and Hannah is that, so I think that my, my first big cycle was in 2014. I worked on the U.S. Senate race and I learned basically that type of formula that we see with statewide races in Arkansas that have the uh, classic milestones, I guess like the Gillette Coon Supper, you know, that oyster supper that only men can go to or something like that, and uh, watermelon festivals, tomato festivals, all of that. And that along with, you know, some earned media, some policy proposals, and uh, some field game, that's basically how you run a campaign in Arkansas. Like if I were just to kind of make a simple chart, that's that's how it's done. Um, easier said than done, obviously, but that's kind of the structure. Uh, I would say that it's very easy to get in that groove of trying to do a few things differently, but maintaining that same structure. But working with Hannah and Jared, they really brought in so many different experiences and backgrounds and perspectives of like, us and being able to ask why, why do you do things this way? Or like, what can we do differently here? I think that that really allows people to step outside of the box when you have those sort of people on your team and uh, step away from the things, the way that things have always been done. You know, 10 years ago in a campaign, Field would, which Field is, you know, calling people on, on the phone, texting them now, um, knocking on doors. Uh, Field was not that big of a thing in Arkansas. It was just getting started. Uh, we didn't have these major databases like we have. We didn't have staff people running those databases. Like it was it was very different and, and all of that really got started with President Obama running and building that sort of infrastructure nationwide. Now you could not run a campaign without it. You um, Retail politics is absolutely necessary in some of those communities that just don't function that way still. But um, whether it be lack of access to Internet or they meet at community centers or a church or something else. But you ultimately could not run a campaign in Little Rock or in, in big hubs of the state like that without a field campaign. And also within the past few years, digital in campaigns has really exploded. Uh, There are digital firms popping up all across the country and campaigns and state parties, everything else have, nonprofits have huge digital um, departments now where their their fundraising budget literally relies on digital fundraising. Their advertising is primarily done through digital and that's the most effective way that we can do it now. And so um, campaigns are rapidly changing and we need to be able to bring those innovations into Arkansas so we can really start to reach the people in a way that's different and doesn't just look the same every cycle. But I do think that those tried and true milestones are A, fun, but B, important and necessary to reach certain communities. Well, it's got to be tough because you it's not like you can practice in the meantime. I mean, it's like you have to have a strategy for each mm-hmm. campaign. And if it doesn't work, you can't go back and do it over. Right. right? So what are you watching to stay up to date or be a leader, you know, in, in evolving campaigning, I guess. 
Right. So I think in terms of what we're doing with field, what we're doing with digital and um, whether it be, you know, now sometimes you'll get a text from perhaps a number that you don't know being like, are you going to vote uh, tomorrow for so and so? Or uh, you are scrolling on Twitter and you see an ad and you're like, whoa, how did they know that? You know, I live in that district or something like that. Um, I think that keeping up with those technologies is certainly something that's really important and really vital if you're looking to stay relevant in how the campaign world functions. And that's done through several trainings through um, NGP, which is a, a democratic organization that uh, either works with a lot of these technology companies or owns some of them. And staying up to date with just what you read in the news, honestly, like people are always talking about how campaigns are being innovative, especially with so many presidential candidates that we have right now. They're getting really innovative with how they're running their campaigns and organizing across the country without the candidate even having to be there. And a lot of that is done through technology. So really keeping up with that is fun and very, very important. Mm -hmm. There's so many candidates running. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to let things shake out. I'm coming around though on Elizabeth Warren. I've always really liked her, but mm -hmm. for some reason I'm 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 struggling with her as a presidential candidate. Right. I you know, I really love Liz Warren and her policies. I think that she's putting out a lot of serious proposals and I wish that everyone was. But uh, you know, I think there's a lot of great candidates in the field that I'm really excited about. Yeah. It is exciting. I mean it's a it's a Oh yeah. A, yeah. A, what do they call it? A something of riches. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, okay, so you mentioned working on the 2014 Senate race. Mm -hmm. Let's back up and um, tell me about the different races you've been involved in. Originally, I got started in politics. I joined my Young Democrats chapter as a freshman in college, and they told me about a state Senate race up in Jonesboro, Arkansas that was a special election. It was for Steve Rockwell, who... Uh, ran, I, I guess it was, uh, the race was probably from about September to January. I could be wrong on that, but the Young Democrats worked on that campaign and they all literally went up on our college winter break and knocked doors all day and then would phone bank all evening. I think we did that for about three weeks or so and we would prior to that we would come home and like or we would go there on like thanksgiving break and everything else and so that was the first campaign i worked on and i really loved it and i got to do it with a bunch of young people and it was really exciting ultimately that race didn't pan out we didn't win it but when i came home from winter break and living in jonesboro for the past you know month and a half i I was really excited to get involved with the 2014 election that had already been gearing up. You know, they had primaries that previous summer and uh, there were, you know, Mark Pryor was running for re-election, everything else. And so there was there was a full ticket. Lots of people were running. It was very exciting. And I had the opportunity to go and intern in Mark Pryor's uh, campaign office with his communications team. A ton of really great people were on that campaign. Some of them were from Arkansas and some of them that was... Um, one of the top tier races that cycle. So there were a lot of people that were experts in their fields that were coming in from all across the country to work and help out on that campaign. So I really got to learn from just a huge slate of people that had different experiences and different takes on what should happen in Arkansas that year and got to absorb it all as a college freshman. And I loved every minute of it. It was a really great team. What an experience. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Experience. Yeah. 2014 was a really tough loss for Democrats in Arkansas, but I wanted to get involved like right after election day. I just wasn't willing to, you know, let it go. And that legislative session started up that 
January after that November in 2014. I worked with the State Democratic Party as a legislative coordinator for uh, two freshmen at the time. They'd just gotten elected, State Representative Michael John Gray and State Representative Charles Blake. And a uh, new representative... Blake didn't know Representative Gray, but I got to work with both of them that session. And I was still in college at the time, so doing all of that in the background here. After that, I just remained involved with my local county party. Then later that fall, probably closer to 2016, Connor Eldridge had announced for U.S. Senate. I originally joined his campaign as a volunteer and then was hired and worked on his campaign in finance. And I learned so much in that role. I had never done finance necessarily or fundraising um, on a campaign before. And I loved that team so much. And the Connor and his whole family are just incredible people. And they were awesome to get to work with. I took off that next fall actually from college. I put my scholarships on hold and just worked on the campaign. So I took off a whole semester of college for it. And I loved it and it was the experience of a lifetime and I got to do like I was saying a lot of the same things that they had done in 2014 in terms of those you know mile markers and everything else but also got to learn a lot of new things they they did things differently that year that was it was a big presidential year that was that the whole Trump thing was just starting up things were looking very different and so it was really awesome to get to work in that environment and be there after that campaign, the 2017 legislative session had happened. Uh, Michael John Gray was now minority leader. I helped him out with uh, research and the caucus. And then after that, Jamie Scott had announced for her state representative race. I worked for communications and with Jamie Scott's race and she won in a primary. Then I joined Jared's team uh, about that same time doing finance and after the primary, I went on full-time as communications. And Jared's race, can you think of any um, sort of lessons learned or what are your main takeaways from that experience? I learned just so much from that team and getting to work in that role. It was a huge privilege to be able to uh, work alongside Jared and Hannah that closely and to get to, you know, really have a big spot on a campaign like that. I had been a deputy prior and an intern plenty of times, but that was my first director role on a race like that, and I really loved it. I think that one of the big things that I took away was that in addition to everything changing in terms of like the Democratic Party around the country that I was learning from and just seeing how these races were unfolding, seeing what type of candidates were announcing and everything else, Jared and Hannah both taught me that different perspectives in politics are good and bringing a lot of people to the table makes what you're doing that much better. Like you said, politics kind of tends to be a club, but also politics, like in campaigns in general, you just have to get things done so quickly that you really just don't have, or well, at least you don't feel like you have a lot of time to bring a whole lot of people to the table for some things. Like you've just got to get things done. Jared and Hannah were really great about taking a step back and being like, no, we absolutely should include people and, and get their perspectives. And I learned a lot about taking the time to do that and learning from other people. I also learned that we have a long ways to go in terms of building an infrastructure for democratic progress in this state. You know, we have a lot of really great fired up people and talented people in this state that just need a place to go and need a place to plug into. 
because I think that the energy is there, but not necessarily the spot or the place to do it is there. Right. And we we certainly need that. Yeah. One of my concerns is keeping people in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. I, I want young people to stay here. I want there to be opportunities. I want them to stay and make it the place where they want to live. And as someone who moved around a lot, I mean, I was mm-hmm. always on the go. I never lived anywhere longer than three years until yeah. I moved to Arkansas. So I say that knowing that about myself, but I also say all the time that like, there's just no reason Arkansas should be last and everything. Mm-hmm. What are the ingredients we're missing to provide better education, healthcare, job opportunities, training, whatever, whatever the problems are? Yeah, I think this was a message that we talked about and certainly one that Jared has talked about throughout his career here in Arkansas, Um, but we talked about through the campaign a lot, is that there is a lot of untapped potential in the state in terms of, you know, people in Arkansas are just as brilliant and and creative and amazing as people who grew up anywhere else. But like you said, we're, we're last in a lot of things. The opportunity isn't there. And in terms of the ingredients that it takes to get there and provide those people that opportunity, I think we really just need someone who is willing to go out and do the hard work that it takes to A, get democratic representation in the state, but B, really, really care about those areas. I think that a lot of those areas are left behind if they were ever you know, acknowledged to begin with. And that that's really tough. And it's, you know, I don't know if it's easy to forget about them, but it certainly seems that way from a lot of the ways that our state operates. And I think that going into those communities and not trying to fix things ourselves, but like talking with the people there about what they want and how they think that it needs to go and how they think that it needs to be fixed is like really where we start to see that opportunity come into play because they want that. They absolutely want that. They want they want their own opportunities and their own chances to go and reach their fullest potential, but they need a chance to be able to do that. And I just don't think if we're if we're not prioritizing those places, then how can it be done in terms of resources that they're provided or anything else like that. And so when you say those places, are you talking about places like the Delta or areas of South Arkansas or really any rural area in the state? Yeah. I mean, you know, on these statewide campaigns, I've been to so many small towns in Arkansas that at this point, I'm kind of surprised when I hear about one that I'm like, oh, I've never, you know, been there. There are just so many places that are, yes, absolutely in the Delta that has been like in the Delta, especially that have been ignored for a long time and in Southern Arkansas, but places that are losing population and numbers to metropolitan areas for bigger jobs and bigger cities. And I think that they are very strong communities that are willing to work together to get a lot done, but it's just about letting them have that opportunity and those resources to do it in the way that they, they see fit. Yeah, and, and that uh, moving to more urban areas, I think, is happening all over the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, just because, I guess, because our economy is changing, our, our mm-hmm. employment opportunities are changing. And I don't, I'm not really sure. I don't. I haven't studied this, but my cousin-in-law, he's a farmer in Monroe and Woodruff counties, and he talks about the fact that there are just no workers there mm-hmm. to work the farm. They all go to Jonesboro or Memphis or Little Rock or wherever. And so he just, there's just a lack of, of labor. And, you know, I don't know, but what do you do when it's not harvest season? You know, they, they have to have something to do then. Right. And I don't know what the solution is to that, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that when we, part of it is certainly that there are these jobs that are growing or that are like 
more reliable, more, you know, better paying, et cetera, that are in these big hubs and various parts across the country. And that certainly that's why these, you know, Houston has like what, 3.5 million people living in it now, you know, like that's why we're seeing like this sort of consolidation in those areas. But I do think that you know, it was part of Jared's platform. Um, part of the reason why people don't want to live in these small or aren't able to live in these small towns to begin with is because like if you're near, let's say that you're wanting to retire in an area of Arkansas. Well, a lot of people go and retire in an area like Hot Springs, but like Hot Springs has a hospital right there. If you want to go retire in some towns in Arkansas, your nearest hospital is like an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to start a small business and you really rely on some a service like Amazon or Etsy, uh, you really have to have good broadband to be able to have that business grow. And if you live in a part of Arkansas where you don't even have cell phone reception, much less like an internet provider, that's not an option for you. And so I think that when we look at where we're last in a lot of these areas and why, that that really impacts why some of these communities are struggling. And it's kind of a catch-22 there, but I think that we first and foremost just need leaders who are willing to tackle those problems in really genuine ways that benefit these communities instead of pushing them off into Mm -hmm. these other areas. Yeah. We'll continue this conversation another time because I I would like to really get way into policy and Mm -hmm. and who benefits from not doing these things. Mm -hmm. Someone's benefiting. Oh, absolutely. I don't know who, Mm -hmm. but we can talk about that. Let's talk about sexism. Oh, yeah. And your experiences or observations you don't have to tell me everything i know again it's a small state so (laughs) i'm not trying to call anyone out but what are are there issues that you've seen out there obviously there are really really great allies out there in terms of men who work in politics that i've had some allies in my career that have been some were people that I just met and some were people that I've known for years and years and years, but that they were like phenomenal and that they were really great about making sure that women's voices were heard at the table. But I think that we tend to automatically assume that just because we're in a progressive space that there isn't those sort of factors at play, but they're always at play. And I think that in politics in general, the good old boys club is very, very, very prominent. And sometimes it's not even in ways that are explicit. You know, I think that originally in my career, I spent a lot of time assuming that I just needed to work harder or that I needed to do something differently because I saw male counterparts who potentially had like done the same thing, done less or not done anything at all and get way further ahead. And I still experience that a lot now, but I don't necessarily critique myself for it. It's certainly to a healthy amount I do, but um, I also realize that that's, that just because I'm in a progressive space, that that doesn't mean that that won't happen. And I think that as we bring more and more people to the party who are new faces, that hopefully that will be less and less and that it will be more of a space that is more accepting to women, people of color, and all sorts of other identities. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's ever going to be perfect in an institution like politics, but it's certainly something that we should fight back on and absolutely something that any young woman in politics is experiencing. What do we do about that? I think, you know, I 
I think I came to the same conclusion that I did when I thought that it was perhaps something that I was just doing wrong myself, which is that like you just have to work harder and work around it. And sometimes it's a case where it's something that you can call out and be like, hey, you know, that's not fair. Sometimes it's it's not. And I think that having enough faith in yourself that you can like have the, that that. Um, you know, you're experienced enough that you have enough confidence, you're mature enough, like you can handle this. Um, everything else is really what it takes to go out on your own and make it happen regardless of those people that are trying to hold you back. That's easier said than done. But I think that's really the best advice that I could give right here, right now at my age to mm-hmm. go around it. I'm, I'm all for calling it out. Uh, Absolutely. You know, or at least trying to have, especially if it's someone you know fairly well, just saying, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to have those conversations, but I am, well, I'm not afraid to call anyone out <laughs> anytime. Uh, I appreciate that. And I've, I've just seen, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, well-meaning people who just don't realize they're doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I still catch myself being sexist about things and, you know, like with Elizabeth Warren. What is it about her that is, is it her voice? Right. Sometimes it's just implicit that like people don't even necessarily realize they're doing it, but then, you know, sometimes it's very explicit. Sometimes people, but people aren't even meaning to like, it's like, why, why did you hire that person over that other person? Like put it down on paper. What, what made it different, you know? Right. Right. And so was it the amount of confidence that you had in someone? Was it that they just had some sort of inherent savviness that you can't explain like what is it and so mm-hmm. i think that a lot of that comes into play in ways that we aren't expecting and it's hard to change mm-hmm. it really is i know um when i started trying to learn more about um african-american experiences mm-hmm. and privilege and and all of that it, it's really hard not to push back on just the way it has always been for you right so i you know, when there would be people of color who would get mad at me or tired of explaining things mm-hmm. or being the black person I asked the questions of, you know, and and I get it, but at the same time, well, I don't know how to say this without sounding too precious about myself. When you're just raised in a system and that's normal to you, it's really hard to kind of take a step back and see how that's hurting other people, whether Mm -hmm. it's as a man or a white person or a straight person. Um, And so I think it's... I think it's really challenging for people um, because uh, it's much easier to just say, "Uh, you know what, screw it, I'm just not going to... I'm just going to stay away from all the Mm -hmm. black people so I don't have to figure out how to operate (laughs) in this world, you know? And I think it might be the same with men. I think men are like, it's easy for us to roll our eyes when guys say, well, how am I supposed to act at work? Mm -hmm. Act like you do with the guys, except without the locker room talk, you know, just treat us professionally. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's like, it's not that hard. So anyway, I don't know if I'm actually saying anything or asking anything. You know, I agree. And that it's like anytime you walk with any sort of privilege, no matter what it may be, economic, uh, in terms of like gender, race, sexual identity, anything, that it's both a lot of unlearning and a lot of learning at the same time. Because it, like you're right, you you can't you can't necessarily help the type of experience and environment that you grow up in, but you can learn what about that impacts your privilege or enhances it, and unlearn that that 
is how it necessarily should be and then learn more about other people's experiences. And so I think that it's definitely a process that people struggle with and it, sometimes it's it's implicit, you know? I, I don't think that every type of sexism that I've experienced in politics is necessarily just men trying to be, you know, bad men, but I do think that uh, it's something that it's everyone's responsibility to take on and try and unlearn and learn more about. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard, but mm-hmm. we do ha- we have to do it. And I'm I'm grateful that we are in the time we are now. You know, I think Me Too has done an incredible amount of good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been painful. Um, I know there have been a lot of complaints that uh, Tarana Burke is that her name, mm-hmm. the kind of the founder of Me Too yes. the hashtag. Um, Yes, it's unfortunate that it took white women, I guess, to to really make that spread. Mm -hmm. But I'm still grateful that we're in it now because I do think it's making men examine who they are and how they treat people. Like I said, when I first got started in my career or interning or whatever I was doing at the time, uh, I... Like I was looking a lot internally and being like, is this valid that I feel this way or is it just something that's wrong with me? And like, that's not to say that there weren't places that I could improve, but at the same time, like, no, it it fundamentally is not as easy for, for women or people of color to operate in those spaces and to get ahead in those spaces. And so I do think that there are those struggles like back and forth as to whether or not it's like, oh, okay, well, is this me just, you know, being mad and feeling like this just isn't fair in general or is it is it something deeper than that and I think that also just to add on to that one of the I've actually probably never told this story before but one of the people that I worked with uh, on a campaign a couple years ago he I had just met him a few weeks prior and was having a few problems with some of the consultants and other general know-how people in the campaign taking me seriously and I had written up something that was being discussed in a meeting but I wasn't at the table for the meeting this dude um, he spoke up and he was like hey you know like Abby actually wrote this and uh like you think it's good but I I didn't like we didn't none of us here at this table wrote this she did and like you probably need to give that feedback that you just gave me to her because you know she should be in this room and she should be at this table and having barely known that guy and like for him to like speak out and a not take credit for that but also to like you know, be like, hey, she should be at the table and like empowering me in that sort of way. It meant a lot. And also I think it really changed how other men were operating on that campaign in terms of, oh, hey, why are there like other women on this campaign, but they're not all in this room and stuff like that. You know, just like thinking about things and leading by example in terms of allyship is really important. And I was really grateful for that moment. It taught me more about what I could expect from people and and how it should work. And it was also kind of, in a weird sense, like validating to know that like, oh, hey, people see this too, like this is happening. And I love that story. Thanks. (laughs) So one thing that I've been complaining about for years now is what I call the Democratic Party pandering to women and and people of color. Mm -hmm. And I feel like politicians often, even though they sincerely want to do what they say, but I, I feel like once they're elected, it's like, okay, well, we'll get to that later. And, you know, I understand the anger from black women about the 2016 election because so many white women voted for Trump. And what do we need to do to actually truly be inclusive? Is it 
more examples of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Just say, uh, hey, why don't we actually ask the people this policy is going to impact? You know, mm-hmm. let's have them at the table. Like, what do we need to do to actually stop pandering and start doing? Yeah, I think that that looks a lot of different ways. And actually, uh, the best example that I have of this is from another podcast that I listened to. Um, I, I actually, it was from the Crooked, it's from the Crooked Media Production Company, um, but Janetta Elsie, she is one of the contributors for that media firm and she was talking about this one time about how women of color especially black women that are considered the the strong base of the democratic party they consistently turn out for decades and that is that is a huge base that we rely on that they aren't necessarily represented in the policies sometimes that democrats are fighting for and how that's not necessarily fair i think that we've really got to start expecting both in terms of like allyship, bringing people to the table, that's that's extremely important and like letting them have their own voices there. But also I think that in terms of electoral politics and how that functions, like we have got to start prioritizing those policies and not just pushing them to the side, like you said, but we've got to start prioritizing those policies that are for the communities that are getting us elected. And also we've got to start electing people from those communities. One of the examples that she gave was that like, is the top of your policy platform for black women criminal justice reform or is it education? You know, like, like what are you really doing to help these these, uh, communities that are not like like tokenizing in a way like yes that's important but like go and talk to them or elect them or bring them to the table do something that's just more than relying on their vote and turning them out and have them be involved in the process and i think that's super important and something that we nationally and in many parts of the country like really don't do well Mm -hmm. so i was talking to eve jorgensen from moms demand action and i asked her if she was So one of the pro-Second Amendment arguments against gun control is, um, well, it's all it's all the black people in Chicago. (laughs) You know, it's it's black on black crime. You know, they're the problem. It's, you know, whatever. And so I asked her, I said, well, are you obviously that is not I mean, gun violence is a problem in every community. Right. But is is that a community that you work with? And, And she said that her hesitation is going into a community that has been working on issues for a long time mm-hmm. and they don't need some white woman oh, yeah. from the Heights or I don't know where she lives, but for, you know, to come in and say, okay, well we're here now, we're going to fix it or we're going to do whatever. And so, um, so taking what you just said, it's not even really a matter of arriving and saying, okay, here we are. What do we need to do for you? Oh yeah, It's, no. it's really just saying, okay, just li- more listening and complimenting people who are already doing the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of working in communities, I absolutely agree with you. I think that there should not be any white savior complex in the sort of allyship or advocacy work that you're trying to do in any space. But I think that in terms of coming into a community, if you're there to help, it better be as like a secondary role to the people who have been doing it for years and years and years. And it, like you said, it should be to compliment them. And also like when I say that we need to be representing these communities and electing people from these communities, I mean that in a way that's like in some form or fashion, whether it's at the table, electing them something, you need to be handing them the, the megaphone and letting them do themselves. it. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that is incredibly important. And I think that allyship can look 
a ton of different ways. It can be like that guy who knew that he was in the room based on the privilege that he had that spoke out and was like, hey, this should be different. I think that it can look like that. Or I think that it can look like what we just said, which is like having people at the table and letting them take the reins. Mm -hmm. So, and there are different stages of it. Wow. We have so much work to do. Um, All right. So you are currently just sort of looking for work and... Right. Currently I'm doing some like independent uh, work with a few state legislators and helping them with some research that they're trying to get done, some communications, some social media management, stuff like that, and looking for a job, hopefully in Arkansas, but anywhere that, you know, we can get some change done. I always say that I don't think I should get everything I want, you know, um, (laughs) And I really like the idea of people working together to uh, solve problems Mm -hmm. and bringing their different ideas, right? Because I do believe that most people care about Arkansas. Mm -hmm. They're just coming at it from a different way or they see different problems than what we might see, right? Right. And I really hope that we are in the in the worst of it right now as far as the the fighting and vitriol yeah, sure and politics. So <laughs> it's really brutal and mm-hmm. you know social media is not helping. I think in our personal lives and politically, obviously, mm-hmm. I mean we could talk all day long about Russian trolls or any trolls. Right. But I think too social media is creating this space where we're not having nuanced conversations. It's all just mm-hmm ad hominem attacks on each other a bunch of hot takes yeah everything else yeah and so and no one's reading actual articles or no one's fact checking anything (laughs) and you know who's got time for all that but i really do hope that that i hope it doesn't get worse i i certainly hope it doesn't get worse and i hope that we can look forward to something that looks a little bit like compromise again like you said i don't want to get everything that i want but like i think that you know having another voice at the table is important even if i don't agree with them but uh certainly people that are willing to fight for what seems like reasonable better solutions for people Mm -hmm. in arkansas yeah okay i'm gonna ask you last question Mm -hmm. um there are so many women running for president on the democratic side Mm -hmm. and it does seem like the men are getting the attention the buddha judge biden from a communications perspective and knowing how hard it is, or I'm assuming how hard it is to just get your message out there in Mm -hmm. the media, um, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, so that's such an interesting question. I, first of all, I'm so excited that so many women are running. Uh, You know, having a woman run in 2016 was one of the most inspiring things. And I never would have imagined that it would have turned out the way that it did or that we'd be here with, I, I don't know, probably like six women running for president. But that's incredible. And despite the circumstances, I'm so glad that it's happening. And I have heard a lot about, you know, Beto, Buttigieg, Biden, and all of them getting a lot of the media attention. And I think from a communications perspective that that's really tough. You know, the the major news networks in terms of national news, I truly do not tune into those. (laughs) I can't stand them personally. I just don't find them to be helpful or productive. And I don't really feel like... I necessarily learn anything that I can learn from like a print article or something. But um, I do think that it's a problem because so many people do rely on that, that the women candidates aren't getting enough airtime or, you know, they're not being brought up enough in conversations and things like that. 
honestly, that's that's something that probably a, the vast majority of these women, if not all of them, have had long, long decades of careers in politics. And uh, I hate to say it, but I'm sure they're used to it by now. You know, like they knew going into this that it was probably going to be a very big field and that it was going to be really hard, doubly hard as a woman to get to the top of that field. And so I'm really grateful that all of them are sticking it out there and running. And um, hopefully there is some change in the media and how they prioritize candidates. But as of right now, I really don't know what more they can do other than I think that Elizabeth Warren has been putting out a lot of policy proposals that certainly, whether they don't like them or not, people are talking about them a lot. And um, Kamala Harris has come out with a big teacher plan. And uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is speaking out a lot against Trump in ways that is, you know, really taking him to bat. And I think that stuff like that, like speaking truth to power is really just what's going to have to and a lot of hard work is really just what's going to have to try and overcome that because um, the sort of way that those major television networks work, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't see a, a whole lot changing. But, you know, I guess just be so good they can't ignore you. And I think a lot of those women are. So, yeah. So for anyone listening, if they have a favorite candidate, what's the best way they can help them right now? Oh, yeah. So I like I was talking about with those technologies and campaigns earlier, there are some um, candidates are coming out with apps that allow you to organize for your candidate right here at home. And um, whether that be, you know, host a watch party for their scene in town hall or go knock doors or make some phone calls, looking to see if your campaign has that. Uh, it's it's hard to get involved here in Arkansas because we're not necessarily considered a swing state like some other states are, but sign up to volunteer on their website. I think most importantly, like we were talking about with those one-on-one conversations, try and have those. Like it's it can be super uncomfortable to talk with people who, you know, like my grandparents who just switched from Fox News to One America because it was, you know, just even further right. Uh, it's really hard to have political conversations with them, but like sometimes if you can do it in a way that's like healthy and respectful, like good things come out of it and don't shy away from that and don't think that it's uh, a bad thing to necessarily try out because that's, uh, you know, that's how these candidates have to do it. So And send them money. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. How yeah. could I forget? That's so important. Yeah. $2, $3, anything. Those digital ads that you see, those emails that flood your inbox uh, before you put it in your archives, just go press the button and give them a few dollars because that's how... That's how these campaigns are able, especially the ones who have denied PAC money. That's the only way that they can stay viable in this very, very long race. Uh, It's not even summer of the year before yet, and they've been at it for months. So they have a long ways to go, and it really does help. It is exhausting. Oh yeah, our our campaigns are just exhausting because it's it they're they're just now just perpetual. Got to be in it for the long haul for sure. Uh, Okay, so. Uh, I hope you find a job you love. <laughs> Thanks so uh, much. With a candidate you love or a, an issue. I'm Absolutely. assuming that's what you'll probably do. Okay. And anyway, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me yeah. on. This is a blast. Yeah. And uh, thanks so much for what you're doing. This is really awesome. Thanks. Thanks for being an uppity woman in Arkansas. <laughs> Stay here. <laughs> thanks.